No, I'm, I'm excited for our message today, for the passage that we're going to cover. And it's wonderful to begin this season of Christmas and this season of celebrating Christ's birth to hear the Christmas songs which we're singing and which we'll be he- uh, singing and hearing for the rest of the month and to launch the Christmas season with the banquet the way that we did last night. It's just such a wonderful time to focus on this and to lead up to the birth of Christ. Now, as we enter this season of Christmas, we still want to focus on uh, Daniel. We want to continue with our um, discussion and our uh, study of the book of Daniel. And the reason that we're doing this, and this is part of the reason that we're doing this, is because as we saw last night, Daniel is entirely related to Christmas. Right? We heard the wonderful, the beautiful poem that Dr. McLeod delivered yesterday for us, and where he showed how Daniel, the person Daniel, and therefore the book of Daniel is related to the birth of Christ. And we see this particularly, as Dr. McLeod mentioned it, we see this come out in Matthew chapter 2. And so I just wanted to bring this out a little bit today as well. Matthew chapter 2. Matthew 2 recounts the birth of Jesus. And uh, this is how the chapter begins. It says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. These Magi or these wise men, these politicians came from the east to worship Jesus. But the question is, how did these wise men know about the God of Israel? Or how did they know about the birth of Christ specifically, right? If you look at this map, you can see that here's Jerusalem. And here is the ancient Near East. Here's the East. Here's uh, Babylon. Here is Medo-Persia, Susa. This is where Daniel would have been. So the question is, how would these magi, how would these wise men would have known about the birth of Christ? And that Babylon, that ancient Near Eastern area, that's exactly where Daniel was. And we already saw from various parts of Daniel how Daniel was a tremendous testimony of the God of Israel. I mean, you just think about Daniel in Daniel 6, where he was thrown into the lion's den. Why was he thrown into the lion's den? It wasn't only because he prayed. It was because his enemies knew that he prayed. Right? That's why they threw him in there. And so he was a testimony to all the people around him of the God of Israel. But not only was he a testimony to those people around him in his era, but he was a witness to the people for generations to come after him, all the way down to these magi who came to see and to worship Jesus at his birth. So Daniel is absolutely related to Christmas, and it's due to his godly character. And so it's it's appropriate for us to continue our study in the, li- uh, the life and in the text of Daniel. So we see, when we look at Daniel, we actually see the amazing impact that a righteous life can have, not only on people around you, but on people who come for generations after you. Now, we've already seen the righteous life of Daniel. We saw that he is an uncompromising uh, believer. He's an uncomp- uncompromising man of God in his faith, we can click to the next slide. Yeah, yeah. He's uh, uncompromising in his faith. He was uncompromising in his obedience. He studied scripture. He loved God. He was a man of prayer. And as we come to chapter 9, 
we see how this chapter brings out yet again that he was a man of prayer. In Daniel 6, we saw the fact that he prayed. And in Daniel 9, we get to hear a specific prayer that he prayed. And the event that took place in Daniel 9, the time that he was thrown into the lion's den, that actually takes place at the same time that Daniel 9 takes place. So when he was thrown into the lion's den, and the prayer that we get to hear today from Daniel 9, it takes place during the same year. It was uh, Both of those happened at the beginning of the reign of Darius, or Cyrus, when the Persians, uh, when the Medo-Persians captured Babylon and took over the ancient Near East. And so you can think about it this way. In Daniel 6, we saw Daniel from a distance with his windows open facing Jerusalem. And in Daniel 9, we get to step inside the room. And we get to be with him and we get to hear the prayer that he was praying to God in and around that time. Now, I know that prayer is hard. I know it from my own experience because... Over the years, I've been learning how to pray, and I've been blessed by that uh, ministry and by that uh, gift that God has given us to appeal to Him. So I know it from my own experience. I know it because people have said to me, I want to improve my prayer life. I also know it because the disciples of Jesus had a difficult time praying, and they came to Jesus and they said to Him, teach us to pray. And while Jesus gave the disciples instructions how to pray, Daniel 9 gives us an example of how to pray. And let me put this plainly. If you're a believer, you must pray. If you're a believer, you must pray. J.C. Ryle, a pastor and a preacher from the late 1800s, He said that just as the first sign of life in an infant when born is the act of breathing, so the first act of men and women when they are born again is the act of praying. Now, in contrast to this, Ryle also said not praying is a clear proof that a man is not a true Christian. It's something to think about. Now, in his small book on prayer, J.C. Ryle, that you can see on the screen, one of my favorite books on prayer, and I definitely recommend that you read it. Uh, In this book, he begins the discussion on prayer with a simple question. It's a a question that I want to bring to you as well. And here is the question. Do you pray? Do you pray? If you think about your prayer life and your prayer life is stale, or if your prayer life is stagnant, or it's struggling, then let's listen to Daniel's prayer, and let's learn from him how we ought to pray as well. And as we look at his prayer, I want to read the entirety of his prayer from start to finish so we get the full picture of the prayer that he brought to the Lord. And so this is in Daniel chapter 9, and I want to read this portion from Verses 1 through 19, verses 1 through 19. And as you're turning there, you can understand that this is the prayer that Daniel prayed 2,562 years ago. He stood in his room, probably on his knees, opened the doors, the windows towards Jerusalem, and then he brought this appeal to the Lord. The first few verses give us the context of this prayer, and then we hear the 
what Daniel said. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, from the seed of the Medes, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, discerned in the books of the number of the years concerning which the word of Yahweh came to Jeremiah the prophet for the fulfillment of the laying waste of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. So I gave my face to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to Yahweh my God and confessed and said, and here's his prayer. Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and committed iniquity and acted wickedly and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and judgments. Moreover, we have not listened to your slaves, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame as it is this day. To the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are nearby and those who are far away, and all the countries to which you have banished them, because of their unfaithful deeds which they have committed against you. O Yahweh, to us belongs open shame, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. Nor have we listened to the voice of Yahweh our God, to walk in his laws which he put before us through his slaves, the prophets. Indeed, all Israel has trespassed against your law, even turning aside, not listening to your voice. So the curse has been poured out on us along with the oath which is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, for we have sinned against him. Thus he has established his words which he has spoken against us and against our judges who judged us to bring on us great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come on us, yet we have not entreated the favor of Yahweh our God by turning from our iniquity and acting wisely in your truth. Therefore Yahweh has watched over the calamity and brought it on us. For Yahweh our God is righteous with respect to all his deeds which he has done, but we have not listened to his voice. So now, O Lord our God, who have brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a strong hand and have made a name for yourself as it is this day. We have sinned. We have acted wickedly. O Lord, in accordance with all your righteousness, let now your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain. For because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a reproach to all those around us. So now, our God, listen to the prayer of your slave and to his supplications. And for your sake, O Lord, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. O my God, incline your ear and listen. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. For we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any righteousness of our own, but on account of your abundant compassion. O Lord, listen. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, give heed and take action. For your own sake, O my God, do not delay 
because your city and your people are called by your name. This is the prayer of Daniel from the very mouth of Daniel. Today I want to cover with you the first 14 verses. I said 15 earlier, but 14 is what I should have said. And then next Sunday we'll cover the last portion of this prayer. And as we look at Daniel's prayer, we see six elements of true prayer as an example from what he says in his prayer. And first, we see that prayer is driven by the Word of God. True and vibrant prayer is stimulated by your study of scriptures. Sometimes you might want to pray, but you you just don't know what to say. Well, in cases like that, open the scriptures and pray through the scriptures. Spurgeon said, brothers and sisters, you will not do better than to quote scripture in prayer. There are no prayers so good as those that are full of the word of God. And this is exactly what we see Daniel doing here. Daniel is in exile. He was taken to Babylon, and that Babylon was then conquered by Medo-Persia. But even in these undesirable and difficult circumstances, prayer and scriptures were a priority for Daniel. Verse 1 says that Daniel prayed this prayer in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, from the seed of the Medes, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans. Darius, as I said previously, is probably Cyrus, the, the king who conquered Babylon, the Persian king who conquered Babylon and destroyed it in 539 BC. So this is the end of Jewish exile. Daniel has been in exile all of his life, all 70 years. He was taken when he was a teenager, maybe 13, 14, or 15. And he's been in exile all of his life. And now in chapter 9, he's about 80 years old. So if you look at Pastor John, Pastor John is 84 years old. If you look at him, you can see that this was roughly the age that Daniel was when he prayed this prayer. All of his life, Daniel has been looking forward to the day when Israel would repent and when Israel would return to the land of Israel that God has promised to them. And this is exactly what is on his mind in Daniel chapter 9 as he's studying scripture and as he's praying. In verse 2, Daniel says, I, Daniel, discerned in the books, and that's the scripture. I discerned in the books the number of the years concerning which the word of Yahweh came to Jeremiah the prophet for the fulfillment of the laying waste of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Daniel is reading the book of Jeremiah, the same book of Jeremiah that you and I have in our Bibles. He's reading Jeremiah. He gets to Jeremiah 25, 11, and he reads the following verse. And you can see that verse on the screen as well. He's, the, Jeremiah writes, This whole land, meaning Israel, will be a waste place and an object of horror. In other words, it will be destroyed. And these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. So Israel will be in exile for 70 years. But the question is, what then? What will happen then? So Daniel keeps reading in verse 12, and you can see that on the screen as well. In verse 12, Jeremiah writes, Then it will be when 70 years are fulfilled that I, meaning God, will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, and I will make it an everlasting desolation. 
So after 70 years, God says that he will destroy Babylon. Well, Daniel reads this, and he sees that this is happening before his eyes. This is it. The time is here. He's been in exile 70 years, or roughly 70 years, so the first promise is being fulfilled. He just witnessed Medo-Persia destroy Babylon, so the second promise is fulfilled. And so now he's wondering, will God ever bring Israel back to its land? And he continues reading through Jeremiah. He gets to Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10. And this is the verse that he reads, which you can also see on the screen. When 70 years have been fulfilled for Babylon, I will visit you and establish my good word to you to return you to this place, the land of Israel. Now, this must have been thrilling for Daniel, because this means that Israel is going home. Israel is returning to its land. And this prophecy drives Daniel to prayer. And he pleads with God, and he says to God, God, make this happen. Restore Israel. Bring them back to their land. Reading and studying Scripture stimulated Daniel and brought him to his knees and caused him to appeal to God and stimulated his prayer life. And as we look at the rest of the prayer of Daniel, we see that Daniel wasn't reading only Jeremiah. He was reading many other books of the Bible. In verse 13, he explicitly says that he was reading the law of Moses, the Torah. And that brought him to his knees to pray to God. If your prayer life is struggling, read Scripture and pray through Scripture. You read about the creative power of God and worship God for His amazing awesomeness. You read about the sin of man, pray for the repentance of sinners. You read about the crucifixion of Christ, thank Christ that He died on the cross for your sins and mine and worship Him for bringing redemption to those who repent. You read about the return of Christ, and you pray, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. Let Scripture drive your prayer. In this church, we emphasize the teaching of the Word of God, and rightly so, because we want it to be taught accurately. But we also emphasize the importance of prayer for your relationship with God. H.B. Charles gave a very helpful example to understand the importance of both Scripture reading and prayer and the way that it impacts our, our relationship with God. He said that if you're on an airplane 30,000 feet above ground, you're flying and you look out your right window and you see that there's a wing, and then you look across the row and you look to the left window, you see the left wing, and he asked the question, which of those two wings is more important. <laughs> if one of them fails, you're going down. Both of them are critical to the airplane flying. God designed scripture and prayer so that they are both life-giving sources in a believer's relationship with God. And this is what we see with Daniel. We see Daniel praying as he's reading the scriptures. Now, closely related to this 
is Daniel's desire to pray according to the will of God. As Daniel studied scripture and as he prayed, he understood God's will and he completely aligned himself with God's will because he wanted to be on the same wavelength. He wanted to have the same desires that God has. And this is the second element of prayer. Prayer is devoted to the will of God. It's grounded in the will of God. Prayer is not a method for you to manipulate the will of God. It's not a method for you to inform God as if God needed to be informed by us. Spurgeon said, prayer is not for God's information, but for our instruction. Yes, we want to and we must and God calls us to bring our requests to God in prayer. But then align yourself to God's will because God's will for your life is always perfect. It's always the best. And you want that will to be fulfilled in your life so that you can then glorify God through your life and through your obedience to God. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he taught them to pray according to God's will. In Matthew 6, 9, Jesus said, Pray then in this way, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. And then we see how Jesus himself exemplifies this perfectly when he is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he is standing on his knees and he is appealing to God the Father in prayer just before he goes to the cross. As Jesus is about to face the full wrath of God the Father for your sins, for my sins, he falls on his knees in Gethsemane and he prays this, Father, If you are willing, remove this cup from me. And then he says, yet not my will, but yours be done. But even as Jesus says this prayer, even as he asked for the wrath of God to pass from him, he willingly submitted his perfect and his sinless human will to the Father's decreed will, so that there was absolutely no conflict in the, in the Trinity, in the Godhead, between the wills. And this is the purpose of prayer for us as well. To submit our lives, to submit our perspective on life, to submit our desires, to submit our will to the will of God. This is what we see Daniel doing in his prayer as well. When Daniel read scripture, he understood that it was the will of God to punish Israel For Israel's sin. He didn't dispute this. And so in verse 11, Daniel said, All Israel has trespassed against your law, so the curse has been poured out on us. He understood that it was God's will to punish Israel. But because he read scripture, he also understood that it was God's will to forgive Israel if Israel would repent. And so he prayed in verse 9, To the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness. And then again in verse 19, he pleads with God, O Lord, forgive. O Lord, take action. Forgive and restore Jerusalem. That is the prayer that Daniel brings before God after he sees the will of God in the Scriptures. Knowing God's will from Scriptures allowed Daniel to know how he should pray, how he can intercede for his people. And that should be our desire too. You should want to pray according to God's will, because 
God's will is perfect, unlike our will. Again, prayer does not manipulate God or change God's will since he has already decreed the end from the beginning. And this is something that Nebuchadnezzar learned when he became like an animal and he ate and was in the, in the gra- ate grass and was under the dew of the rain and under the dew of the morning for seven years, he understood that God was sovereign. And when he confessed and he, when he repented over his sin, he said in Daniel 4 that God acts according to his will in heaven and on earth and he does what he wills and no one can resist his hand. So prayer does not manipulate God or change God's will, but prayer allows us to align ourselves, align our wills with God's will, and then to be used by God to fulfill His will. Now someone might say, well, if God, <clears throat> if God has already decreed everything from the beginning to the end, then what am I praying for? And I admit that there is tension between the sovereign will of God and our prayers of request that we bring before God. There is tension that we can't fully understand in our human minds because God is far greater than we are. But to neglect prayer because we can't fully understand it is to reject the biblical teaching that the role of man, the responsibility of man, works alongside with the sovereignty of God. God has made it clear that the sovereignty of God works with the responsibility of man. And we can see this clearly in Philippians chapter 2. And you can see this on the screen. Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, obey God, submit to God, work out your sanctification. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And that's the responsibility of man. That's the role of man. But then he says, for it is God who is at work in you. And that's the sovereignty of God. So is it God or is it man who works out his sanctification? Well, it's God who works in you and through you in order to achieve his will. He works through your obedience to him in order to achieve his will. God sovereignly works through his obedient servants, through believers. When we pray, we align our will with God, and then God works within our lives and through our lives. And again, I admit, this is a complex reality, and we can't fully understand it in our human mind. But we can look at life around us, and we can see cases, analogies, when wills of humans align, when they come together. And we can see this probably, probably the best between parents and kids, when kids want to be like their parents, when they want their, you know, from our perspective, when they want their will to align with their parents' will. Now, I know you guys are thinking, what is he talking about? He has no kids, okay? (laughs) That is not the situation in my family. But there are cases when kids want to be just like their parents, right? And in my case, it's my nephews who want to be like me, or so I think. (laughs) From time to time, I do get to hang out with my nephews and my niece. And uh, I remember five years ago uh, when my uh, nephews, my niece, they came over and we hung out. Uh, 
he was, the youngest one was five at that time, so this was five or six years ago, Mark, he was five at that time, and then Michael was seven at that time. And so they came over, we hung out, I threw the ball around with them, got bored really quickly, and so I said, I'm going to do something useful, I'm going to teach him something useful. So I took out my lawnmower, and I... T- <laughs> it was fine, nobody lost their limbs, they're alive. Um, but I decided to teach them how to mow the lawn. I started the lawnmower, and then I took the seven-year-old, and I put him in front of the lawnmower, took the bar, and then he walked, and I stood right behind him, and I walked, and we mowed the lawn together. Right? So we are wills aligned together. Now, at that, as we were doing this, the five-year-old kind of began to do his own thing. But when he saw that we were walking and mowing the lawn together, he ran up to me, and he said, I want to do the same thing. I want to do this as well. He genuinely wanted to come and learn how to mow the lawn. And so I took him, and he's like five, so I don't know, what is that, two feet, two and a half feet, three feet? (laughs) So he's like standing. I put him in front of the bar. He's standing like this. I'm standing behind him, and we're mowing the lawn together. And our wills came together at that time. He really wanted to do what I was doing. Now, it all paid off in the end. Uh, you guys are laughing, but it all paid off in the end. I was proud that I taught them something useful. Seven, six years passed. A few months ago, uh, Michael, who is now 13, he calls me out of the blue. He does not call me, but he calls me out of the blue, and he says to me, Uncle Joey, I want to come and mow your lawn. I said, I am the best uncle ever. I taught him something useful. He's going to graduate high school. He's going to go to college. He's going to Harvard, Yale, Princeton, right? So that's what I was thinking. But I was naive. There was a catch. And as soon as he says to me, he wants to come and mow my lawn, he then says to me, how much will you pay me? I said, pay you? Why am I going to pay you? And he says, I want to buy an Apple Watch. I said, all right, okay, there it is, there it is. That's, that's what the catch was. So now he does. He comes and he mows my lawn from time to time, and he makes money. He did buy an Apple Watch for himself. So. Um, but when, when you think about a situation like that, and you think about the, the two kids just coming together with me and us doing the work together, our wills were one. We were aligned. We were doing the same task. When we pray to God, we seek to align our will to God's sovereign will because we know that God's will is all good, it's all wise, and it's all perfect. And our goal, again, is not to change God's will, but to become part of God's will and for God to use us on this earth to do His work that He is doing throughout the entire world to achieve his will. And when we look at scriptures, we see God using his servants in their prayer and in their obedience throughout scriptures to fulfill his will. 1 John 5.14 says, If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we see this among God's servants. In 1 Kings 17 and 18, Elijah prayed that it would not rain for three and a half years. And it didn't rain for three and a half years because that was God's will. Then he prayed that it would rain and then it started to rain because that was God's will. And James in the New Testament brings up this example 
And then he says in James 5.16, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. If the prayer is aligned with God's will, then God uses that prayer and he uses that believer, the obedience of that believer to achieve his will. Now, in contrast to this example, in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul prayed that the thorn in the flesh that he had would be removed from him. But it was not removed. Why wasn't it removed? Because that was not God's will. God's will was for Paul to have that thorn in the flesh. God didn't remove it, but God did give an answer to Paul. God said to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. God said, I will not remove this trial, but I will sustain you through this trial. I will give you strength. So what was Paul's reaction? Paul aligned his will with God's will. Paul said in verse 9, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, he said, most gladly, most gladly, I will rather boast in my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Paul aligned his will with God's will and he gladly endured that trial. We read scripture and we pray and we do this in order to find God's will. And when we find God's will, we align our will with his will because we know that he will give us only what is best. And he will use us to glorify himself through our works of obedience. And when we do this, when we pray according to God's will, we affirm that God's will is perfect. We affirm that what he is doing is right. It's wise. And at the same time, we reject the world, the sinful world around us. When Pastor John preached on this uh, chapter, he emphasized this point and he said that prayer according to God's will is a form of rebellion. Prayer according to God's will is a form of rebellion. Rebellion against the world, rebellion against its fallenness, rebellion against its sinfulness. When we pray according to God's will, we rebel against the sinful world around us, but we affirm that God's divine purposes are perfect and our true. And this is exactly what John did in the book of Revelation. After Jesus said to John in Revelation 22, verse 20, that he is coming back, Jesus said, I am coming back quickly. John's response was, Amen, come Lord Jesus. Amen means I affirm this. Come Lord Jesus. John fully affirmed this promise and he said, May this come true. May this come to be. John was saying, I reject this fallen world and I affirm the return of Christ, Christ for him to establish his righteous kingdom. And this is exactly how Daniel was praying as well. Daniel refused to accept the way that this world was functioning around him. He refused to accept the unrepentant state of Israel. And so he prayed for their repentance. He refused to accept, accept the idea that Israel was in exile. And so he prayed to God to restore the nation of Israel. He rejected the way that this world was running. And he prayed for the will of God to come true. So first, we see that prayer is driven by Scripture. We then see that it's devoted to the will of God. And thirdly, true prayer is determined to repent before God. True prayer is determined to repent 
before God, and you can see that on the screen as well. In true confession, true confession of sin, you're not partly repenting and then partly holding on to your sin. You're cutting off sin entirely, and you're cutting off every temptation that comes with that sin. If your right eye makes you stumble, Jesus said, tear it out. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off. Repentance is supposed to be transformative. Every act of repentance is supposed to conform us more to the image of Christ. And Daniel, in response to reading Scripture and seeing God's will, he gave all of himself to confess his sin and the sins of the nation of Israel. And we can see this throughout his prayer. First of all, we see that his prayer of repentance was fervent. In verse 3, Daniel says, So I gave my face to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Daniel's prayer was not an event that he treated lightly or treated casually. Daniel gave all of himself to this prayer. He says, I gave my face to the Lord. I set my face. I fixed my gaze on the Lord. And he calls God here Lord, meaning Adonai, understanding that God is the sovereign master of the universe. And Daniel calls God Adonai in this chapter 10 times. But this sovereignty of God didn't stop Daniel from praying. It actually motivated him to prayer fervently. And that's what he does throughout his prayer. So we see that his prayer was fervent. We also see that his prayer was humble. In verse, in verse 3, the same verse, he said that he prayed with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes, showing his humility and his contrition over sin. And then in verse 4, he adds, And I prayed to Yahweh my God and confessed. He confessed his sin. He knew that he and Israel had no righteousness of their own to stand before God, and he admitted this. Remember the Pharisee in the New Testament who came into the temple and he said, I fast twice a week, I pay my tithes of all that I get. I get. Well, Daniel was the exact opposite of that. He didn't parade his good works, but he came humbly as an unworthy servant and slave of God. Thirdly, he, his prayer affirmed God's righteous character. Daniel proclaimed not his goodness, but the righteousness of God, the righteous attributes of God. He calls God in verse 4, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Daniel's entire prayer is fixed on denying himself and on exalting God. Fourthly, in his prayer, he repented over his sin and over the sin of Israel. He said in verse 5, we have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have acted wickedly and we have rebelled. Daniel didn't dismiss or sugarcoat his sinfulness. He used four different verbs here to demonstrate the vile nature of Israel's sin against God. He said, we have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have acted wickedly. We have rebelled. He says, we didn't do this accidentally. This was intentional rebellion against God. And notice that in each case, Daniel says, we have sinned. This is incredible. In Ezekiel 14, Ezekiel lists three people who are the most righteous people in this world. Daniel, Noah, and Job. And Daniel, who is listed by the inspired scriptures as one of the most righteous men, says, we have sinned. 
He includes himself in the category of sinners against God. Why does he do this? Because he knew that before God, he was a sinner. He didn't compare himself to other people, to other sinners, to make himself look righteous. He compared himself to the righteous God so that he would appear exactly as he was, an unholy sinner. Just like the prophet Isaiah said, I am a man of unclean lips. Just like the apostle Paul said, I am the chief of sinners. Daniel saw himself as a sinner before God. Again, that Pharisee who went into the temple, he said, I am not like other people. I'm not like the swindlers, the unjust, the adulterers, or like this tax collector who was standing there. But Daniel knew that he was no better than the rest of the Israelites. And he acknowledged that his sin also contributed to Israel's judgment. And then to add to this, Daniel says that not only did they sin against God, but they refused to repent when the prophets called them to repentance and confronted them of their sin. Daniel said in verse 6, We have not listened to your slaves, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Israel heard the prophets. They heard the warnings that they brought, but they disregarded them. They preferred their sin over their God. And so Daniel shows here that true prayer rejects sin. It confesses sin, and it pleads with God for forgiveness. And this is the next element of prayer. True prayer is dependent on the forgiveness of God. You can see this on the screen as well. True prayer admits is dependent on the forgiveness of God. True prayer admits that sinful man is dependent on the forgiveness of God. You have no righteous standing of your own before God. Your righteousness is found only in Christ. And as Daniel shows his dependence on God's compassion, he says that God is the one who is righteous and holy, not us sinners. He emphasizes this. Daniel says in verse 7, To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness all the time whether in blessing Israel or being patient with Israel or in judging Israel, Daniel declares that God was perfectly righteous. And in contrast to God's perfect holiness, Daniel then admits that Israel was unholy. Israel was unfaithful to God. And therefore, they needed to depend on God for mercy, for forgiveness. In verse 7, Daniel says, To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame, as it is this day. To the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are nearby and those who are far away, and all the countries to which you have banished them, because of their unfaithful deeds which they have committed against you. O Yahweh, to us belongs open shame, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. You know what Daniel is saying here? He's saying that there is none righteous, not even one, just like Psalm 14, just like Romans 3. All that all of Israel could claim was sinfulness and unworthiness before God. All of them had one thing in common. That's what all sinners have in common. They're all unfaithful to God. And the language that he uses here of unfaithfulness is strong language. Just like a spouse is unfaithful in a marriage if they commit adultery, 
So Israel was unfaithful because they had committed spiritual adultery against God. And with such a verdict, all that Israel could do was depend on God, on His mercy, on His forgiveness to make them righteous. And that's what Daniel declares in verse 8. He says, To the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness. The only way that Israel could be right before God is if God forgave Israel. And as we've said before, the word compassion here, it's related to a mother's womb, to the care that a mother provides for her unborn child in order to protect the child. And that's who God is. That's how Daniel presents him here. Instead of judging you and me to eternal hell, God provided salvation for us through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Instead of abandoning us here, he uses us and he sanctifies us so that we are conformed to the image of Christ. That's what Daniel is depending upon in his prayer as well. And as Daniel admits that they have no righteous standing before God, he declares that the discipline that they're receiving, the punishment and the judgment that they're receiving is absolutely just and righteous from God. And this is our next element of prayer. True prayer declares and accepts the righteous discipline of God. True prayer declares and accepts the righteous discipline of God. Accepting punishment for your sin is not always easy. I think we all can agree to that. If you get a ticket for speeding and you have to pay the fine, if you mess up on your job and then you get fired, if you face any consequences for your sin... Admitting that punishment for your sin is fair is not an easy thing to do. But in a true prayer of confession, you are not bitter that you are being disciplined by God for your sin. You receive it, and then you allow God to transform you, knowing that God is punishing you because He loves you. God is punishing you. He's disciplining you because He loves you. Hebrews twelve six, whom the Lord loves... He disciplines. He is shaping you into the image of Christ. When Daniel looked at the punishment that God gave Israel, the severe punishment of exile, he admitted that God's judgment was justified. Look at verse 11. Daniel says in verse 11, Indeed, all Israel has trespassed against your law, even turning aside, not listening to your voice. So, as a result... The curse has been poured out on us along with the oath which is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, for we have sinned against him. Daniel said that the curse that was poured out on Israel was well deserved. This curse is the wrath that God promised to bring against Israel if they broke the covenant that he made with them. When God made this covenant with Israel and when he gave them all of the commandments, The people responded with one voice, and they said, this is in Exodus 24, the people responded and they said, all the words which Yahweh has spoken, we will do. That's the commitment they made to him. And then in Leviticus 26, 27, Deuteronomy 27, 28, God lists the specific details that they must keep to keep this covenant. In Deuteronomy 27, it says, Cursed is the man who makes a graven image or a molten image. Cursed is he who dishonors his father or mother. Cursed is he who perverts justice. And then it goes on. 
God gave Israel very specific instructions for this covenant. God even said what punishment they will receive if they disobey. Moses says in Deuteronomy 28, 36, If you disobey God, your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people. You will be sent to exile. Well, Israel did not keep all the words that God had spoken. Instead, as Daniel said, they rebelled and they did not repent. And so Daniel said that just as God had warned them of punishment in exile, so it happened, they were judged, and they were exiled. And this is Daniel's sobering point here. He says, we got what we deserved. We got what we deserved. And Daniel admitted that the punishment that God brought in Israel was exactly what he said he would do. God was simply being true to his word. In verse 12, Daniel says, Thus he has established his words, which he had spoken against us and against our judges who judged us to bring on us this great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been anything like what was done to Jerusalem. The punishment that Israel got was what God promised for their disobedience. And unlike Israel who did not keep God's word, God did keep his word. But even though God punished Israel, this still gave Daniel hope. It still gave Daniel hope. Because he understood, Daniel understood that if God keeps his word to judge Israel, whom he loves, this means that he will keep his word to bless Israel if they repent. This gave Daniel hope. This is why he was praying for Israel so fervently, because he knew that God would be true to his word to forgive Israel if Israel repents. And understand that when Daniel was praying this, he was praying against all odds. He was looking around him, and it did not look like people were repenting. Just like you and I pray for somebody's salvation for 10, for 20, for 30 years. That was the situation with Daniel as well. He had been praying for the repentance of Israel for 70 years in exile. And even at this point, Daniel looked at the exiles around him, the situation, and it looked absolutely hopeless. Because even in his time, people were not repenting. Look at verse 13. He says, As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Exile has come upon us. And so what is the response of Israel? You would think that they all repent because of this punishment. But Daniel says, Yet we have not entreated the favor of Yahweh our God by turning from our iniquity and acting wisely in your truth. Israel did not turn from their sin. Israel did not turn and follow God. All of this discipline takes place and the people of God are still refusing to submit to God and to obey God. Daniel could have easily said, forget about this, I give up. But this did not stop Daniel from praying. He knew that it was God's will for Israel to repent and so he prayed all the more fervently and desperately pleading with God to bring Israel to repentance. And as Daniel prayed, he understood that this judgment that they were experiencing was righteous from God and that it was given to the people of Israel so that the Israelites would turn in repentance to God. Daniel is very careful here in the words that he chooses, the words that he uh, uses to describe what is going on, to say that the Israel's suffering was not some accident of history or because there was an 
enemy nation that was more powerful than Israel. He says that this was a deliberate act of God. Look at verse 14. Daniel says, Therefore Yahweh has watched over the calamity and brought it on us. For Yahweh our God is righteous with respect to all his deeds which he has done, but we have not listened to his voice. He says here that Yahweh has brought this calamity upon us. But how could God do such a horrifying thing to his own people, to a people whom he chose and the people whom he loves? Well, Hebrews 12, 6 answers this question for us. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he flogs every son whom he receives. God gave this judgment to Israel because he wanted Israel to repent. God wanted a relationship with Israel, and so God punished them. He allowed Assyria and Babylon and Medo-Persia to come and conquer their region and to come and destroy Israel and then to exile all of the Israelites. He made sure that this judgment took place so that Israel would repent. And Daniel understood this, and he prayed that Israel would repent, that God would use this judgment in order to bring Israel to repentance. This is what true confession looks like. A truly repentant person admits that he is guilty, and he accepts whatever punishment that God gives him. And why does a believer do this? Because a child of God knows that God uses discipline to refine us and to conform us to the image of Christ. This is the model of a true prayer. True prayer is driven by the word of God. It's devoted to the will of God. It's determined to repent before God. It's dependent on the it's dependent on the forgiveness of God and it declares the righteousness or the righteous discipline of God. Now, there's one more element that we won't discuss today, but I put it up on the screen nevertheless. Uh, we'll leave it for next Sunday. And that is that true prayer is dedicated to the glory of God. All of prayer ought to have one goal. And that goal is to bring glory to God. And we'll discuss that next time. But let me say one final thing. I think it's fair to say that we neglect prayer oftentimes because we have no time. We're busy, right? Life in LA is fast-paced. We're busy. And I'm not going to deny this. But here's what J.C. Ryle says in response to this reason. You can see this on the screen. He says, when time is really wanted, time can also be found. And time with our God should be of utmost priority for us. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we are able to come to you. Lord, we thank you that you call us to come to you. And Lord, that you receive our prayers, you hear us, and you answer us every single time. Lord, I thank you for that. Lord, I thank you that you are a great God and that we do not understand all things in our finite, in our human mind. And Lord, I do ask that you would help us to trust you nevertheless. Lord, help us to depend on you in all things. Help us to put our life into your hands. Help us to align our life with your will. 
Lord, may that be our driving desire in life. Lord, may, may we live according to your will as opposed to our imperfect and sinful will. Lord, may these wills, may our, our will and your will not be in competition. May we seek to submit our will always to you, Lord, and to your perfect will. Lord, I pray that you would bless us. I pray that you would help us to love you more and that you would continue to refine us and to conform us into the image of Christ. Lord, we thank you that we are able to come here from Sunday to Sunday and study your word and to see what you desire from your scriptures that you have revealed to us. I pray that this would be with us in our minds and in our hearts, that it would shape us and that it would guide us in life as we go forward. Lord, we love you. We thank you. And I pray that you would bless the rest of this day. Amen.